Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Leer and this is an episode within our series SCAS Talks Spotlight, which will take us to the fascinating world of research within solar power. In the beginning of May, SCAS, in collaboration with Uppsala University, was host for the Nobel Symposium NS191, Efficient Light to Electric Power Conversion for a Renewable Energy Future gathering the world-leading scientists within the field. The symposium was organized by Professor Anders Hagfeldt, Vice-Chancellor of Uppsala University, Professor Marika Erdoff, and Professor Christina Gorsten, Principal of SCAS, with the support of the Nobel Committees in Physics and Chemistry. The principle of solar cells of photovoltaics is to convert the energy of light into electricity. You have probably seen black or blue solar panels on rooftops, This can convert approximately 20% of sunlight into electric power. Nowadays, there are many different materials to achieve this. The development started off with silicon and subsequently other materials such as dye-sensitized solar cells, thin-film solar cells and most recently so-called perovskites have been explored and optimized for low cost and high efficiency. Ilai Jablanovic, Director Emeritus of the NSF Center for Energy Efficient Electronic Science in Berkeley and one of the pioneers within the field, tells us more. Each material is like a gift from Mother Nature to that that material is so different from all the other materials. And so the history of the field has been to discover a material that works well. And the solar cells as we know them have existed for the past 75 years. And during that time, Only um, two, three, or four materials have been shown to be suitable. One of them, of course, is silicon, and there are a few others. And the most recent one is the so-called perovskites. They're very interesting materials. They're the first uh, semiconductors that are like a salt. We call that ionic. And most of the semiconductors are covalent, which means they're the opposite of a salt. They don't dissolve in water. They're like silicon. They're hard as rock. And they're very stable and very useful. And now we have the new materials. They dissolve in water. They dissolve in other solvents. That makes it easy to manufacture, but then it's not very durable. We don't yet have the exact method of preserving them. They're trying to seal them off. They can do it, but it adds to the cost. We'll have to wait and see how effective it is. But I feel very good about solar cells in general. We have many options now where we used to have only two Now we have maybe another two, so it's four options. That's enough to guarantee that in the future, humanity will get most of its energy from solar panels. And this was predicted uh, a long time ago by a very famous physicist by the name of Freeman Dyson. And he said that there will be a shell around the Earth, and the only purpose of the shell will be to uh, collect the solar energy. Well, a shell would be too much. I don't know what we would do with so much energy. To learn more about solar cells, I invited some of the participants to the SCAS Talk studio. In this first discussion, you hear Martin Green, Anders Hagfeldt and Marike Erdoff discuss the development, efficiencies and collaboration with the industry. Spoiler alert, one of them just broke a new record. I'm uh, Martin Green from the University of New South Wales in Sydney. And I'm the founding director of the Australian Centre for Advanced Photovoltaics. That means I'm working on silicon solar cells in particular. 
And I'm uh, Anders Hagfeldt, Vice Chancellor of Uppsala University. But my research background is also in solar cells, working on dye-sensitized and perovskite solar cells. And I'm Marika Edof. I'm professor at Uppsala University, and my main expertise is in CIGS, thin film solar cells. So we have different types of solar cells in here, right? Right. Can we look a little bit at the development of the solar cells? What has happened and what have been the milestones sort of on the way? I started my career in 1970 and the things were just starting to happen in the solar field. The solar cells had been used on spacecraft, but the interest in using them terrestrially was starting to build up. So, um, yeah, there have been many developments, but the really important developments has been the reduction in the cost. The solar cells are now thousands of times cheaper than they were back in the 1970s. And the performance of the cells has uh, improved quite dramatically as well. So that, you know, even uh, 15 years ago, solar was a relatively expensive way of generating electricity. But now, you know, according to most parties, including the International Energy Agency, solar now provides the cheapest way of generating electricity in most countries. On my side, it started, say, 30 years back or even a bit more on a very surprising breakthrough in a way to work on what we today call the dye-sensitized solar cell. But it was a new way of doing solar cells in a much more of a chemical way. And the fun thing with it was that it was not supposed to work in the beginning. It was not how you should make a solar cell. But so it created a lot of excitement, in both fundamentally, how does it actually work? And then it's a lot of material science coming in. But as Martin said, our argument in the beginning to work on a new technology was that the existing one, the silicon one, was too expensive. And it will always be too expensive. That's also how we argue that. Therefore, we need to do something which can be cheaper. And then during the years now, silicon has really become both a very efficient and a cheap technology. So we have also to turn and sharpen our arguments to look into new things and how can we be more efficient, maybe together with silicon, there are pathways to make solar cells more efficient. And when I started in 1990, a milestone that was set out was that to reach 15% efficiency. If we reached 15% efficiency with a thin film, we could make a case to silicon, which already was at more than 15% at the time. And we did that and we thought that, okay, this will happen now. And we also made business out of it and we succeeded technically. But to compete with a very reliable and low cost, as it were, it became a low cost technology is very difficult. And I also think that the ideas of research is also to get together and discuss things and also things that we learned from silicon and implemented into CIGS, like passivated back contacts, for example, is, is things that we actually have inherited between. And I think coming together as we're doing now and discussing together is a, also a way of, of learning about fundamentals from each other, which I think is very, very valuable. And uh, it was just mentioned you had a record or a new breakthrough recently with the efficiency. It's like a friendly game, I would say, to break world records. And there are different classes, so it's like sports almost, because we have different sports. <laughs> and in the thin film CIGS sport, we now have a, a record which is significantly higher, but not so much higher, but significantly higher than the old record. So it's 23.6%. And it was measured only a month ago or so. So it's quite recent. Nice. 
That's great, of course. Martin is the one who brings all these things into the table. So I'm not sure if it's in the table yet, Martin, or, or not. We publish a table of all the record efficiency. And as Marika mentioned, there's all kinds of subcategories and so on that are listed there. Marika's and her team's new result is planned to be included in the next version of these tables. We set up the tables to make sure that cells were measured responsibly. So to gain entry into these tables, you have to have them independently measured by a a well-established test centre. And the test centres interact with each other and discuss the results. And so the test methods are improving as a result of the tables as well. So it's, you know, a way of quality control, I guess, in the reporting of new results with these materials. Because invariably, if you left it to the researcher groups alone to measure them, they would measure them a little bit higher than an independent laboratory might measure them. And reproducibility is always an important aspect, of course, in all scientific research. Yeah, that's why I think Marika said it's a friendly game, which it is. I think we are all happy when we see new world records. And there is a kind of, of course, friendly competition we want to see. But it's also kind of Formula One record, as we talk about, where we do everything possible to get the champion cell. And that is, of course, interesting. How far can you reach with a certain technology? But if you then go into the more industrial development, then there's other criteria, of course. That's more, what's the worst cell you get? And bring that level up, let's say, instead. Yeah, it's a very different type of development, I would say. In research, sometimes you do a lot of different experimental series and then you pick the series which gave the best results and maybe that's only 10% or even less of a full year's work that you actually choose to publish because that's the only experimental series that you learn something from but when you do more industrial related research then you do a lot of experiments of the same type for one year and then you worry a lot about the 10% that don't reach the level that they should reach to be a good result for commercialization. And I get the feeling from this symposium that you're very much involved with the industry and with companies to develop new products. We work closely with the manufacturing industry, which is largely based in China now, but we have a long history of association with the Chinese industry because some of my students established the initial manufacturing in China. And many of our students that we've trained have ended up within the Chinese industry. We have very close connections with them and we know if we get a good research result, there's a clear path for getting that uh, result adopted by the industry. So we're very grateful for that close relationship because it brings a certain in more intense relevance to the, to the work that we're doing. And on that note, Martin, I, we discussed a bit during dinner last night because it's dominated by the Chinese industry, as you said. How do you see also India is coming up, for example, and How does it look in Europe, United States? Is that picking up or will it still be dominated by China for the coming years or decades? China has established a very strong position, which I think is good for the world because China is now the biggest emitter of carbon dioxide and they're still installing more coal-fired power stations. So the cheaper and higher volumes that you can produce solar cells in, the more quickly you'll be able to rein in the uh, Chinese CO2 emission. So I think it's sort of good that they are dominating the industry. But then again, there are concerns about one country being so dominant in the industry after the experience with Russian gas. There's efforts to diversify and uh, you know, possibly uh, India is leading those efforts. So there's a big push from the Indian government and some of the major companies in India to 
establish a viable manufacturing industry there. A couple of weeks ago, I was in India and got to see firsthand just the progress they were making in building up facilities to try and take on the the Chinese directly. So you have the three different, or you present three different solar cells. In what way are they different and how can they complement each other? So I'm interested in both the areas that the two here are working on in that um, I see the next evolution in cell technology, you know, starting with the silicon cell is stacking a solar cell from a different material on top of the silicon cell. What you need is a cell that can respond to the higher energy photons, the blue photons in sunlight better than a silicon cell can. And both perovskite solar cells and the SIGS type solar cells have that ability to respond to blue light better than a silicon cell can. I'm interested in in both those materials as possible ways of evolving the uh, silicon cell efficiency. Let's say if we talk about the fundamentals of limitations and such with fundamental parameters to measure, for example, then I think we all meet at that point. All the technologies come together. There's the same fundamental limitations and the same fundamental parameters to measure. And there they go together. But then if you bring it down a level and you look into the detailed mechanism and the materials you use, then, then it becomes very different in a way. I have not seen a silicon material in a dye-sensitized cell, for example. But for sure, with, with meeting together like this, there's so much to learn from the different technologies and you can sort of get ideas to, to bring into your own technology. And as Martin said, the very interesting uh, development at the moment is also to start to combine technologies together. That's, that's very exciting. I'm leading a European project, which is just about that. So combining silicon solar cells with CHS top cells which is, of course, extremely challenging. But it's a good way to talk to each other and also how you connect them together, how we can work together, the transparency and things that we need to solve in order to do that. So it's also about talking to each other from different cultures, from different countries and working together. What about the future then? What will happen next? What kind of development can we see during the next few years? I think the silicon cells are already cheap enough to provide a way of reducing our carbon emissions so that in Australia, where I come from, we're already seeing solar and wind starting to displace coal generators, which Australia was very reliant upon very rapidly, much more quickly than people were expecting. So I'm sort of seeing uh, Australia as being a bit of a pioneer in developing a, a renewable energy grid network with the challenges that's going to pose. So it's quite an exciting time from that point of view. I think solar is going to become the dominant way of generating electricity over the next decade or two. But there is still the potential to make it much cheaper than it is now, even though it's the cheapest form of generating electricity in most countries. It can still be made a lot more cheaply. So that opens up exciting prospects of being able to do things with energy that have been too expensive to do in the past. Yeah, we see that development in Sweden too. Sweden traditionally has had very cheap electric power, which means that it's very, very difficult for solar cells in Sweden to compete with our basically carbon neutral electricity system because we don't burn coal in Sweden to make electricity at all. And that has been an argument against solar that uh, we don't need it basically and it cannot compete with the electricity price. But now actually it's cheap enough 
to use silicon technology to make cheaper than conventional electricity in Sweden. It has been used on houses for a while, but now it can also be used in large fields. And we see that almost explosive development right now. Yeah, that's very exciting. And Sweden is, of course, a country where we need most electricity when it's the least sun, so to speak. So a development of batteries, but perhaps in larger scale, even more hydrogen and so forth will be also important development. So it becomes also the system integration using the solar production of electricity together with storage distribution and so on. So I think that is also going to happen. Then, of course, Martin triggers the mind when, you, when one says that it will be so much electricity that we can do new things. And then you say, that must be very exciting to think about what one can do in that case. But that's a good room for a newer generation to come into, I think, to start to explore innovative ideas here. I think the role of the university and what we do, in addition to research, is to provide knowledge and competence, both for industries, but as Martin mentioned, that you export a lot of knowledgeable people to China and they start a business there. And we also provide engineers and PhDs to industry and for governmental agencies and so on. We don't only do research, we also do education, and that's an important role for the university. We do have also in the symposium here several younger researchers, of course, who carries it on and take on new ideas and, and competence. So that looks very promising. Perhaps the biggest contribution we've made, like several of our technologies have been commercialized, but probably the biggest contribution we made has been in education and the impact that the people that we've trained have had upon the industry and the reduction of costs within the industry and so on. And that's probably been our most important contribution. Economic factors also play an important role for putting solar energy into large-scale use. Ultimately, the goal is to replace fossil fuel energy by renewable energy. Jenny Nelson, Richard Swanson and David Mitzi tell us more. My name is Jenny Nelson. I am a physicist working in Imperial College London. I've been working on photovoltaics for 30 years and have moved through different material systems. Nowadays, I'm focusing mainly on doing solar energy conversion with molecules, with molecular materials. We call it organic photovoltaics. The principles are quite similar to how photochemical conversion is done in plants. And I'm Dick Swanson. I've been in photovoltaics for 50 years. I had essentially two careers, one as a professor at Stanford University. That was from 1976 until 1991. And then I resigned and and started a company called SunPower. And then I retired from SunPower. And I'm David Mitzi from Duke University. I'm a professor in material science there. Well, we call it the Mechanical Engineering and Material Science Department. I've only been in solar for 15 years, so I'm I'm the youngest here in that (laughs) regards. But I have been doing research in new materials, new semiconducting materials, for for 30 years or so. Now my group works on new materials for energy applications, including photovoltaics. So we work on perovskites, we work on calcogenide-based materials. So the previous group here in the studio that we just heard talked about education. Do you have any thoughts about this, the education of future scientists and also dissemination of knowledge to a broader audience? You have written a textbook, Jenny. I have, but I think (laughs) I would start earlier with education, earlier than the average 
age of the readership of the, of the book. I think there is a case to understand solar energy conversion, you need some physics. To understand climate change, you need some physics. To understand energy conversion storage, you need physics. And there would even be a case that we should teach students about thermodynamics, about light, about electricity, using renewable energy as the vehicle, using climate change as a vehicle. So that, you know, at the age at which they're learning how to, you know, address and solve problems for themselves, they're also learning the nature of the problems that are going to be the most important ones for them in their careers. And I think there would be a case for doing this earlier in schools. In fact, to some extent, different places, it's already being done. But we should use our global challenges. We should use our education to equip young people to be able to make interventions. I really think that. There's a lot of resistance to it, but... I love that <laughs> idea, Jim. That's a great idea. I'll say at Duke, we have started to try and center broader teaching around sustainability. And I guess the only thing I would add to what you're saying, Jenny, and I teach a thin foam PV class and we make use of your book, so thank you for that. <laughs> but in the education process, to include aspects that go beyond the technical. Absolutely. The problems are, are beyond technical. They are technical, but they're also beyond technical. These are all great ideas, but I need to harp on something that I find very frustrating, and that is the very poor level of understanding of energy in the adult population. And even in the, dare I say, the media, one of the things that points this out is that very often the units are wrong. And I find this just really annoying. As we ran into this with when people started writing articles about us, and we'd say, well, we're going to we're going to build a, uh, a 50 megawatt power plant. Well, what's that mean? You know, and, and then they, they would say, well, okay, how many houses is that? So suddenly a house became a unit of power. And then when they would write about it, we would say it's a 50 megawatt power plant. They would say it's a 50 megawatt hour power plant. It's sort of like you've got to come up with an energy unit. Oh, my gosh. Oh, kilowatt hours. Okay, that's when they meant power, they used kilowatt hours. So this annoyed me so much that I had to wrestle with it. And I th think the root cause is that energy is such a new concept in our civilization. The conservation of energy, the whole concept of it is really only a couple hundred years old. As a society have not been able to, had the time to assimilate like if, if somebody says you need a gallon of milk in the U.S. Or, or a liter of milk, you know intuitively what that is. But if I give you a unit of energy, say a joule, how much is a joule? So I agree. I think we need to get people on, sort of bring them up to the level of understanding that they have when, when they say, when they realize that gasoline costs $2 a liter. So until people really understand that, we're kind of fighting an uphill battle, it seems. What about the economics of solar cells? So in the end of the day, it has to be economic and preferably people have to make money as well. So what do you have to think about there? What are the factors that are important? There are two ways in which cost is often described. One is essentially a, a cost per unit of power. And this is often associated with how much it costs to buy the module. And the second is more related to the cost of running this installation over some period of time. 
a year, for example, and that's usually expressed in a dollars per unit energy type of unit. And that latter one, I think, is the more useful one for comparing different technologies. It includes the fact that there's day-night shifts in principle, though it does not typically, but it could include the cost of, of storage. That's a metric that needs to be paid attention to. And it includes the cost of making the module. So lower you can, you can reduce that. That's going to lower the levelized cost of electricity. But it can also include um, balance of systems costs and storage and other, other features. The important thing maybe to think about is the, the value of the, the power that's generated. And that would be in terms of meeting some need. And so I think we've been so, you know, in our respective histories, we've been most of the time working to improve efficiency and lifetime, of course, in order to bring down the the cost per unit electricity generated in standard conditions. But then when we want to solve global problems, we have to integrate this with everything else. And that does involve storage, both long-term storage, as Vic was talking about, and short-term storage to sort of regulate them on the short term, the balance between supply and demand. It also involves distribution. But at the same time as sort of PV power is, is developing, there are also sort of man-made sources of storage that are developing, for example, through electric vehicles, all these distributed um, power sources. So there's a huge amount that we could do in terms of sort of managing demand and supply that could be done to improve the efficiency of using the renewable power that's generated without really any detriment to service at all. But it's not easy to persuade people to think about that. Politicians like to think about technologies. There's a huge amount that we could do in improving the way we put together the tools that we've already got to meet needs. The problems are there are technical issues and then there are political or societal, sociological issues that need to be addressed. There's also consumer power. So if I, as a consumer, want to support solar power or other renewable energies, what can I do? And now I don't have a house. I can't cover it with solar panels. I live in a flat. So what can I do? There's lots of evolving ideas. There's community solar, that's called. And I don't know the situation exactly in Europe compared to the United States, but you can, for example buy solar panels on a power plant somewhere and get credits for that, that kind of thing. And in the future, you'll be able to, for example, charge your car, maybe at work, charge your electric vehicle while you're at work, which may have solar panels on the factory or on the parking lot. Bring that power home, plug it into your house and run your house at night. When you think about it, A house generally maybe only needs like 20 kilowatt hours of storage to run fine. And a Tesla has 100 kilowatt hours. So you you could run your house all day on only 20% of a Tesla battery. This is just one idea of many things that are bubbling up. One of the aims of the symposium was to bring scientists from different fields within photovoltaics together. The Nobel Committees for Physics and Chemistry also wanted to learn more about the whole field. So I talked to one of the members of the Nobel Committee for Physics. But first, a short comment on the weather. We've had sun all the week, despite of the fact that it has been a bit chilly. Very good solar cell weather. Exactly. I'm Ellen Mons. I'm a professor of physics at Karlstad University in Sweden. 
I'm also a member of the Nobel Committee of Physics. So the Nobel Committee, of course, wants to learn about all topics that are of interest and that are evolving in physics and as well in chemistry and so on. So this is a topic that is of high interest, of high relevance. So we would like to learn a lot, everything we can learn from the experts about this area. Also, the Committee of Chemistry was involved in this symposium. How come? Well, this area is very multidisciplinary. It's really on the interface between physics and chemistry. So there's many aspects and, and many researchers with different backgrounds that work in these areas. So it, it's natural to invite both physics and chemistry members. And uh, we were fortunate enough to get the support from both the, the physics and the chemistry committees for organizing this symposia. I'm trying to listen in to keep a focus on the topic and, and getting the wider picture, which is very important because it's actually um, also a field that have developed a little bit in separate directions that now have a chance to meet also. So there are many technologies in solar cells that now meet. So that's really very inspiring. I think in the future we will see more photovoltaics in society because of the energy crisis, because of climate change. We already see an enormous increase in many countries. I also think that they will still improve. The technology is there, but I think there will still be improvements in efficiencies and in lifetimes of these solar cells. I'm pretty sure that there are still research questions as well, so there will be a, a greater understanding when all these people are continuing their research. I also think there will be a um, larger interest from industry. In general, I think this is a very positive development. Solar power can and most probably will play a key role for a sustainable future. This was a recurring theme throughout the symposium. Eva Anger, professor at the Helmholtz Center in Berlin, chaired the session on device design and raised the question of sustainable solar cell production and also recycling. I am working on scalable solution processing methods for functional material and currently my main research interest is scaling halite perovskite photovoltaic technology to a larger area. You chaired a session today and you were into the topic of recycling and material and life cycle analysis. Yes, yeah, so I think in general, and that's not just uh, reduced for PV, the world or human life and existence on the planet has to become more sustainable, not just in the way we're generating electricity, but in all aspects of our everyday life. So that also means we really have to be a lot more mindful about how much we're consuming of materials. And that means, of course, when we are designing products like solar cells, we need to be designing, for instance, for a very long operational lifetime to also mean we are not going to produce as much waste. The question that I was asking is whether this analysis of what will happen at the end of a life cycle of a solar cell or how much energy, how much material is being used in producing solar cells, how we can actually start to integrate that in also more fundamental research, where we often work on very small area, but that's usually where the new things are being developed, the new processes and new device geometries. And that's kind of an, a bit of an unsolved question. We have the feeling more needs to happen there. And it would be really interesting to see that happening and see how we can take that as another important factor besides efficiency, cost, durability, manufacturability, 
to also take sustainability as one of, let's say, the major design strategies into account when we are designing new products. You have to think about that the recycling and the necessity for recycling that, of course, also factors into the price of photovoltaics. So then, of course, it is another factor to consider when comparing the installment cost or also in comparing the manufacturing cost. So we have to take a more holistic view on essentially everything we're doing. We have to think circular, let's say from the beginning of a product to the end, and then not care what's going to happen with it. But we essentially need to think about how can we make most efficient use of all the resources we have, and ideally use them again and again and again, in order to essentially come in the end to a system that is more or less fully sustainable and fully cyclic. In the future, we will most probably see more collaborations within the different sub-disciplines of photovoltaics. This symposium was an excellent way to start talking to each other, many of the participants agreed. Michael Gretzel, professor at EPFL in Switzerland, sums it up. We are working on photovoltaics, uh, two types of solar cells. One is the disensitized solar cell, which we developed, and uh, the other one is perovskite solar cells that emerged from the disensitized solar cell. Some people might recognize your name. Maybe they've heard of the Gretzel cell. Yeah, that's the first uh, device we invented. It's a mimic of natural photosynthesis in the sense that it uses a molecular dye, like chlorophyll, to absorb light and uh, generate electric power. So what are your thoughts and <coughs> reflections after this meeting? We have heard a lot of talks and there was a lot of discussion. What are your thoughts on this symposium? I think it was an excellent symposium. Something very rare that these different communities meet. We usually uh, feel like we are competitors, <laughs> okay? So each uh, sort of cell category, they have their own meetings and they're happy with each other. And so here this meeting forces us to, if you like, to face our competitors. It's not really a competitor, but it's an alternative approach in photovoltaics. And we should appreciate what the other colleagues are doing. So the cross-fertilization can happen under these circumstances. And also, I mean, I have to say it was a huge enrichment for me because I'm not familiar with all the progress that has happened. So I get myself educated by just spending three days here. I get an update on the latest advance in VV technology and nobody else will do this for me. So <laughs> I'm very fortunate to have been invited. So what's coming next, do you think? I hope that after the symposium that also the politicians will also take note and that uh, young people will, uh, knowledge will be passed on. And also one of the immediate consequences that we are more tightly collaborating with each other. We have met, became friends, and the next thing is we are collaborating and pushing the field forward more quickly. Thank you for listening to SCAS Talks and this episode in our series SCAS Talk Spotlight, focusing on the Noble Symposium NS191, Efficient Light to Electric Power Conversion for Renewable Energy Future, held at SCAS and the Ongström Laboratory in Uppsala in May 2023. I would like to thank Ila Jablonovic, Martin Green, Anders Hagfeldt, Marike Erdov, Lenny Nelson, Richard Swanson, David Mitzi, Ellen Moons, Eva Anger, and Michael Gretzel for talking to me. Thanks also to all the participants of the symposium 
for letting me be part of your world during three intense and very sunny days. Hopefully one of you will get the famous phone call from Stockholm in the future. And thank you for listening. SCAS Talks is available on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes and most podcast apps. In our regular episodes, we feature the research of current and former scholars from a wide variety of disciplines, which is reflecting the multi-interdisciplinary research environment at SCAS. Tune in if you are not a regular listener already. My name is Nathalie von der Leer and I would like to thank you once again for listening. Bye for now.